Though one be baptized, yet believeth not, he shall be damned. As we have said, the sinner is already condemned. The sword of divine justice is drawn even now and waits only to strike the fatal blow. Nothing can divert it but saving faith in Christ. My hearer, continuance in unbelief makes hell as certain as though you were already in it. While you remain in unbelief, you are without God in the world, having no hope. Ephesians 2.12 Now, if believing be so necessary and unbelief so dangerous and fatal, it deeply concerns us to know what it is to believe. It behooves each one of us to make the most diligent and thorough inquiry as to the nature of saving faith. The more so, because all faith does not save. Yea, all faith in Christ does not save. Multitudes are deceived upon this vital matter. Thousands of those who sincerely believe they have received Christ as their personal Savior and are resting on His finished work are building upon a foundation of sand. Vast numbers who have not a doubt but that God has accepted them in the Beloved and are eternally secure in Christ will only be awakened from their pleasant dreamings when the cold hand of death lays hold of them, and then it will be too late. Unspeakably solemn is this, Hearer, will that be your faith? Others just as sure that they were saved as you are, are now in hell. Part 1. Its Counterfeits There are those who have a faith which is so like to that which is saving as they themselves may take it to be the very same, and others too may deem it sufficient, yea, even others who have the spirit of discernment. Simon Magus is a case in point. Of him it is written, Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized he continued with Philip. Acts 8.13 Such a faith had he and so expressed it that Philip took him to be a genuine Christian and admitted him to those privileges which are peculiar to them. Yet a little later the Apostle Peter said to him, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Acts 8.21 and 23 A man may believe all the truth contained in Scripture so far as he is acquainted with it, and he may be familiar with far more than are many genuine Christians. He may have studied the Bible for a longer time, and so his faith may grasp much which they have not yet reached. As his knowledge may be more extensive, so his faith may be more comprehensive. In this kind of faith, 
he may go as far as the Apostle Paul did when he said, This thing I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Acts 24.14 But this is no proof that his faith is saving. An example to the contrary is seen in Agrippa. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Acts 26.27 Call this a mere historical faith, if you will. Yet Scripture also teaches that people may possess a faith which is more than the product of mere nature, which is of the Holy Spirit, and yet which is a non-saving one. This faith which we now allude to has two ingredients which neither education nor self-effort can produce. Spiritual light and a divine power moving the mind to assent. Now a man may have both illumination and inclination from heaven, and yet not be regenerated. We have a solemn proof of this in Hebrews 6.4. There we read of a company of apostates concerning whom it is said, It is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Yet of these we are told that they were enlightened and had tasted of the heavenly gift, which means they not only perceived it, but were inclined toward and embraced it, and both because they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. People may have a divine faith, not only in its originating power, but also in its foundation. The ground of their faith may be the divine testimony upon which they rest with unshaken confidence. They may give credit to what they believe not only because it appears reasonable or even certain, but because they are fully persuaded it is the work of him who cannot lie. To believe the scriptures on the ground of their being God's word is a divine faith. Such a faith had the nation of Israel after their wondrous exodus from Egypt and deliverance from the Red Sea. Of them it is recorded, the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Exodus 14.31 Yet of the great majority of them it is said, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness and to whom he sware that they should not enter into his rest. Hebrews 3, 17 and 18. It is indeed searching and solemn to make a close study of Scripture upon this point and discover how much is said of unsaved people in a way of having faith in the Lord. In Jeremiah thirteen eleven, we find God saying, for as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord. And to cleave unto God 
is the same as to trust him. See Second Kings 18, 5 and 6. Yet of that very same generation God said, This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle which is good for nothing. Jeremiah 13.10 The term stay is another word denoting firm trust. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord. Isaiah 10.20 Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Isaiah 26.3 And yet, we find a class of whom it is recorded, they call themselves of the holy city, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. Isaiah 48.2 Who would doubt that this was a saving faith? Ah, let us not be too hasty in jumping to conclusions. Of this same people, God said, Thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. Isaiah 48.4 Again, the term lean is used to denote not only trust but dependency on the Lord. Of the spouse it is said, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Song of Solomon 8.5 Can it be possible that such an expression as this is applied to those who are unsaved? Yes, it is, and by none other than God himself. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet, Will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Micah 3, 9 and 11 So thousands of carnal and worldly people are leaning upon Christ to uphold them so that they cannot fall into hell and are confident that no such evil can befall them. Yet is their confidence a horrible presumption. To rest upon a divine promise with implicit confidence, and that in the face of great discouragement and danger, is surely something which we would not expect to find predicated of a people who were unsaved. Our truth is stranger than fiction. This very thing is depicted in God's unerring word. When Sennacherib and his great army besieged the cities of Judah, Hezekiah said, Be strong and courageous, 
Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. Second Chronicles 32, 7 and 8. And we are told that the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had spoken the words of God and for the people to rest upon them was to rest on God himself. Yet less than fifteen years after, the same people did worse than the heathen. Second Chronicles 33.9 Thus, resting upon a promise of God is not of itself any proof of regeneration. To rely upon God on the ground of his covenant was far more than resting upon a divine promise, yet unregenerate men may do even this. A case in point is found in Abijah, king of Judah. It is indeed striking to read and weigh what he said in Second Chronicles 13 when Jeroboam and his house came up against him. First he reminded all Israel that the Lord God had given the kingdom to David and his sons forever by a covenant of salt. Verse 5 Next, he denounced the sins of his adversary. Verses 6 to 9 Then he affirmed the Lord to be our God and that he was with him and his people. Verses 10 to 12 but Jeroboam he did not, but forced the battle upon them. Abijah and his people slew them with a great slaughter, verse 17, because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers, verse 18. Yet of this same Abijah it is said, he walked in all the sins of his father and so forth, First Kings 15.3. Unregenerate men may rely upon God, depend upon Christ, rest on His promise, and plead His covenant. The people of Nineveh, who were heathen, believed God. Jonah 3.5 This is striking, for the God of heaven was a stranger to them, and His prophet a man whom they knew not. Why then should they trust his message. Moreover, it was not a promise but a threatening which they believed. How much easier then is it for a people now living under the gospel to apply to themselves a promise than the heathen a terrible threat? In applying a threatening, we are like to meet with more opposition both from within and from without. From within, for a threatening is like a bitter pill. The bitterness of death is in it. No wonder if that hardly goes down. From without, too, for Satan will be ready to raise opposition. He is afraid to have men startled, lest the sense of their misery, denounced in the threatening, should rouse them up to seek how they may make an escape. He is more sure of them while they are secure and will labor to keep them off the threatening 
lest it should awaken them from dreams of peace and happiness while they are sleeping in his very jaws. To quote David Clarkson, 1680, But now, in applying a promise, an unregenerate man ordinarily meets with no opposition, not from within, for the promise is all sweetness. The promise of pardon and life is the very marrow, the quintessence of the gospel. No wonder if they be ready to swallow it down greedily. And Satan will be so far from opposing that he will rather encourage and assist one who has no interest in the promise to apply it. For this he knows will be the way to fix and settle them in their natural condition. A promise misapplied will be a seal upon the sepulchre making them sure in the grave of sin wherein they lay dead and rotting. Therefore, if unregenerate men may apply a threatening which is in these respects more difficult as appears they may by the case of the Ninevites, why may they not be apt to apply, appropriate, a gospel promise when they are not like to meet with such difficulty in opposition. Unquote. Another most solemn example of those having faith but not a saving one is seen in the stony ground hearers of whom Christ said, which for a while believed, Luke 8.14. Concerning this class, the Lord declared that they hear the word and with joy receive it. Matthew 13.20 How many such have we met and known? Happy souls with radiant faces, exuberant spirits, full of zeal that others too may enter into the bliss which they have found. How difficult it is to distinguish such from genuine Christians, the good ground hearers. The difference is not apparent. No, it lies beneath the surface. They have no root in themselves. Matthew 13.21 Deep digging has to be done to discover this fact. Have you searched yourself narrowly, my hearer, to ascertain whether or no the root of the matter, Job 19.28, be in you? But let us refer now to another case which seems still more incredible. There are those who are willing to take Christ as their Savior, yet who are most reluctant to submit to Him as their Lord, to be at His command, to be governed by His laws. Yet there are some unregenerate persons who acknowledge Christ as their Lord. Here is the scripture proof of our assertion. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew seven twenty-two and 23. 
There is a large class, many, who profess subjection to Christ as Lord and who do many mighty works in His name. Thus a people who can even show you their faith by their works, and yet it is not a saving one. It is impossible to say how far a non-saving faith may go and how very closely it may resemble that faith which is saving. Saving faith has Christ for its object. So has a non-saving faith, John 2, 23 and 24. Saving faith is wrought by the Holy Spirit. So also is a non-saving faith, Hebrews 6, 4. Saving faith is produced by the Word of God, so also is a non-saving, Matthew 13, 20 and 21. Saving faith will make a man prepare for the coming of the Lord, so also will a non-saving. Of both the foolish and wise virgins it is written, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, Matthew 25, 7. Saving faith is accompanied with joy, so also is a non-saving, Matthew 13, 20. Perhaps some hearers are ready to say, All of this is very unsettling, and if really heeded, most distressing. May God in His mercy grant that this article may have just these very effects on many who hear it. Oh, if you value your soul, dismiss it not lightly. If there be such a thing, and there is, as a faith in Christ which does not save, then how easy it is to be deceived about my faith. It is not without reason that the Holy Spirit has so plainly cautioned us at this very point. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, Isaiah 44.20. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, Obadiah 3. Take heed that ye be not deceived, Luke 21.8. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself, Galatians 6.3. At no point does Satan use his cunning and power more tenaciously and more successfully than in getting people to believe that they have a saving faith when they have not. The devil deceives more souls by this one thing than by all his other devices put together. Take this present article as an illustration. How many a Satan-blinded soul will read it and then say, it does not apply to me. I know that my faith is a saving one. It is in this way that the devil turns aside the sharp point of God's convicting word and secures his captives in their unbelief. He works in them a sense of false security by persuading them that they are safe within the ark and induces them to ignore the threatenings of the word and appropriate only its comforting promises, 
He dissuades them from heeding that most salutary exhortation, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves, 2 Corinthians 13.5. O my hearer, heed that word now. In closing this first article, we will endeavor to point out some of the particulars in which this non-saving faith is defective and wherein it comes short of a faith which does save. First, with many, it is because they are willing for Christ to save them from hell, but are not willing for him to save them from self. They want to be delivered from the wrath to come, but they wish to retain their self-will and self-pleasing. But he will not be dictated unto, you must be saved on his terms or not at all. When Christ saves, he saves from sin, from its power and pollution, and therefore from its guilt. And the very essence of sin is the determination to have my own way. Isaiah 53, 6, where Christ saves, he subdues this spirit of self-will and implants a genuine, a powerful, a lasting desire and determination to please him. Again, many are never saved because they wish to divide Christ. They want to take him as a savior, but are unwilling to subject themselves unto him as their Lord. Or, if they are prepared to own him as Lord, it is not as an absolute Lord. But this cannot be. Christ will be either Lord of all, or he will not be Lord at all. But the vast majority of professing Christians would have Christ's sovereignty limited at certain points. It must not entrench too far upon the liberty which some worldly lust or carnal interest demands. His peace they covet, but his yoke is unwelcome. Of all such Christ will yet say, But these mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay before me. Luke 19.27 Again, there are multitudes which are quite ready for Christ to justify them, but not to sanctify. Some kind of, some degree of sanctification they will tolerate, but to be sanctified wholly, their whole spirit and soul and body, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, they have no relish for. For their hearts to be sanctified, for pride and covetousness to be subdued, would be too much like the plucking out of a right eye. For the constant mortification of all their members, they have no taste. For Christ to come to them as a refiner, to burn up their lusts, consume their dross, to utterly dissolve their old frame of nature, to melt their souls so as to make them run in a new mold, they like not. To utterly deny self and take up their cross daily is a task from which they shrink with abhorrence. Again, 
Many are willing for Christ to officiate as their priest, but not for him to legislate as their king. Ask them in a general way if they are ready to do whatsoever Christ requires of them, and they will answer in the affirmative, emphatically and with confidence. But come to particulars. Apply to each one of them those specific commandments and precepts of the Lord, which they are ignoring, and they will at once cry out, Legalism! Or, we cannot be perfect in everything. Name nine duties, and perhaps they are performing them. But mention a tenth, and it at once makes them angry, for you have come too close home to their case. After much persuasion, Naaman was induced to bathe in the Jordan, but he was unwilling to abandon the house of Ramon. 2 Kings 5.18 Herod heard John gladly and did many things. Mark 6.20 But when he referred to Herodias, he touched him to the quick. Many are willing to give up their theater-going and card parties who refuse to go forth unto Christ outside the camp. Others are willing to go outside the camp yet refuse to deny their fleshly and worldly lusts. Here, if there is a reserve in your obedience, you are on the way to hell. Our next article will take up the nature of saving faith. Arthur Pink The editor mentions... There are not many these days who relish a study of this character. Its contents are too searching. The majority of professing Christians prefer religious news items about their denominations and so forth, or worldly news under the title Signs of the Times. Yet there are still a few who hunger for spiritual food and would welcome this study did they but know of it? Hearer, are you seeking to make it known unto such? Show your copy or loan it to those likely to be interested. Thank you. Arthur Pink Study number five. Prayer Prayer is an ordinance of God and that to be used both in public and in private. Yea, such an ordinance as bring those that have the spirit of supplication into great familiarity with God, and is also so prevalent an action that it getteth of God both for the person that prayeth and for them that are prayed for great things. It is the opener of the heart of God and a means by which the soul, though empty, is filled. By prayer, the Christian can open his heart to God as to a friend and obtain fresh testimony of God's friendship to him. I might spend many words in distinguishing between public and private prayer, as also between that in the heart 
and that with the vocal voice. Something also might be spoken to distinguish between the gifts and graces of prayer, but as eschewing this method, my business shall be at this time only to show you the very heart of prayer, without which all your lifting up both of hands and eyes and voices will be to no purpose at all. Part 1. What Prayer Is Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God hath promised or, according to the word, for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Number one. For the first of these, it is a sincere pouring out of the soul to God. Sincerity is such a grace as runs through all the graces of God in us, and through all the actings of a Christian, and hath the sway in them too, or else their actings are not anything regarded of God, and so of and in prayer, of which Particularly, David speaks when he mentions prayer. I cried unto the Lord with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 68.18 Part of the exercise of prayer is sincerity, without which God looks not upon it as prayer in a good sense. And ye shall seek me and find, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29.13 The want of this made the Lord reject their prayers in Hosea 7.14, where he saith, They have not cried unto me with their hearts, that is, in sincerity, when they howled upon their beds. But for a pretense, for a show in hypocrisy to be seen of men and applauded for the same, they pray. Sincerity was that which Christ commended in Nathanael when he was under the fig tree. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. John 1.47 Probably this good man was pouring out of his soul to God in prayer under the fig tree and that in a sincere and unfeigned spirit before the Lord. The prayer that hath this in it as one of the principal ingredients is the prayer that God looks at. The prayer of the upright is His delight. And why must sincerity be one of the essentials of prayer which is accepted of God? but because sincerity carries the soul in all simplicity to open his heart to God and to tell him the case plainly, without equivocation, to condemn itself plainly without dissembling, to cry to God heartily without complimenting. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, 
Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Sincerity is the same in a corner alone as it is before the face of all the world. It knows not how to wear two masks, one for an appearance before men and another for a short snatch in a corner. But it must have God and be with Him in the duty of prayer. It is not a lip labor that it doth regard, for it is the heart that God looks at, and that from which prayer comes, if it be that prayer which is accompanied with sincerity. Number two. It is a sincere and sensible pouring out of the heart or soul. It is not, as many take it to be, even a few babbling, prating, complimentary expressions, but a sensible feeling there is in the heart. Prayer hath in it a sensibleness of divers feelings, sometimes a sense of sin, sometimes of mercy received, sometimes of a readiness of God to give mercy and so forth. A sense of the want of mercy by reason of the danger of sin. The soul, I say, feels and from feeling sighs, groans and breaks at the heart. For right prayer bubbleth out of the heart when it is overpressed with grief and bitterness as blood is forced out of the flesh by reason of some heavy burden that lieth upon it. David roars, cries, weeps, faints at heart, fails at the eyes, loseth his moisture, and so forth. Hezekiah mourns like a dove. Ephraim bemoans himself. Peter weeps bitterly. Christ hath strong crying and tears, and all this from a sense of the justice of God, the guilt of sin, the pains of hell and destruction. The sorrows of death compassed me about, the pains of hell got hold upon me, and I found trouble and sorrow. Then cried I unto the Lord, and in another place, my soul ran in the night. Again, I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. In all these instances, and in hundreds more that might be named, you may see that prayer carrieth in it a sensible feeling disposition, and that first from a sense of sin. Sometimes, there is a sweet sense of mercy received, encouraging, comforting, strengthening, and enlivening, enlightening mercy, and so forth. Thus David pours out his soul to bless and praise and admire the great God for his loving kindness to such poor, vile wretches. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, and crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, 
who satisfieth thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed as the eagles. And thus is the prayer of saints sometimes turned into praise and thanksgiving, and yet are prayers still. This is a mystery. God's people pray with their praises, as it is written, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. A sensible thanksgiving for mercy received is a mighty prayer in the sight of God. It prevails with Him unspeakably. In prayer, there is sometimes in the soul a sense of mercy to be received. This again sets the soul all on a flame. Thou, O Lord God, said David, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee an house, therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray unto thee. This provoked Jacob, David, Daniel, with others, even a sense of mercies to be received, which caused them not by fits and starts, nor yet in a foolish, frothy way to bubble over a few words written in a paper, but mightily, fervently, and continually to groan out their conditions before the Lord as being sensible, sensible, I say, of their wants, their misery, and the willingness of God to show mercy. Number three, prayer is a sincere, sensible, and affectionate pouring out of the soul unto God. Oh, the heat, strength, life, vigor, and affection that is in right prayer. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. I have longed for thy precepts. I have longed after thy salvation. My soul longeth, yea, fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Mark ye here, my soul longeth, it longeth, and so forth. Oh, what affection is here discovered in prayer! The like you have in Daniel. O Lord, hear! O Lord, forgive! O Lord, hearken and do! Defer not for thy name's sake, O my God! Every syllable carrieth a mighty vehemency in it. This is called the fervent or the working prayer by James. And so again, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly or had his affections more and more drawn out after God for his helping hand. Oh, how wide are the most of men with their prayers from this prayer. That is prayer in God's sight. Alas, the greatest part of men make no conscience at all of the duty. And as for them that do, 
It is to be feared that many of them are very great strangers to a sincere, sensible, and affectionate pouring out of their hearts or souls to God, but even content themselves with a little lip labor and bodily exercise, mumbling over a few imaginary prayers. When the affections are indeed engaged in prayer, then the whole man is engaged and that in such sort that the soul would spend itself to nothing as it were rather than it will go without that good desire, even communion and solace with Christ. And hence it is that the saints have spent their strength and lost their lives rather than go without the blessing. All this is too evident by the ignorance profaneness and spirit of envy that reigns in the hearts of those men that are so hot for the forms and not the power of praying. Scarce one of forty among them know what it is to be born again, to have communion with the Father through the Son, to feel the power of grace sanctifying their hearts, but for all their prayers they still live abominable lives, full of malice, envy, deceit, persecuting of the dear children of God. Oh, what a dreadful afterclap is coming upon them, which all their hypocritical assembling themselves together with all their prayers shall never be able to help them against or shelter them from. It is a pouring out of the heart or soul. There is in prayer an unbosoming of man's self, an opening of the heart to God, an affectionate pouring out of the soul in requests, sighs, and groans. All my desires are before thee, said David. My groanings are not hid from thee. My soul thirsteth for God, even for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, 
which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart. From his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.